Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, in honor of this year's Oscars, I wanted to return to our episode with Kiwi Kwan. We sat with the actor back in January in the throes of award season. Since then, he's been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his work in Everything Everywhere All at Once, directed by the Daniels. The film is the prohibitive favorite to win Best Picture tonight, and Kwan, for his part, seems poised to come home with a golden statue. But today's conversation is not really about any of that. Instead, we talk about what really matters to Key, like leaving Hong Kong for Los Angeles in 1979, his early success working under the direction of Steven Spielberg on Indiana Jones, the pain that followed as he struggled to find work as a Chinese-American actor in Hollywood, the professional pivot that saved his career, and the woman who saved his life. A life that I hope is properly celebrated tonight during the Academy Awards telecast. As you'll hear in this conversation, the flowers for Key and his work are long overdue. And so with that, whether you've already heard this episode or are just finding it today, I hope you enjoyed this very special sit down with the one and only, the inimitable, Ki Hui Kwan. Ki Hui Kwan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Sam. Thank you for having me. How are you feeling? I feel amazing. Really? Did something good happen this year? Or... <laughs> did a lot of things going on? Or what, what, what? Uh, you know, ever since a movie came out. Oh, that. Uh, that. Yeah. Right. Since uh, I've been on a high, higher than cloud nine. <laughs> that makes it's been, sense. It's been, it's been incredible. You know, the film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, came out last March, I believe. It's been almost a year since people have begun to see it. Obviously, since then, almost everyone I know has seen this movie. And I'm curious, when you watch the film now, or even when you think of the film now and and your work in it, has its meaning changed for you in the last year? Well, I haven't seen it that much. I've seen it four times now. And every time I think about this movie, I have a range of emotions. Well, let's go to the range. Well, you know, first of all, I'm so grateful for the movie because I know, you know, this was a role that I waited more than 30 years for. It was a script that I I waited just as long to read. Never think that I would have this incredible opportunity to be gifted this amazing role. I'm so proud of it. And I remember vividly the time we spent in Simi Valley making this movie. At the laundromat. Yeah, Laundromat was on location. The movie star uh, universe was shot in downtown Los Angeles, but the majority of the movie was in this abandoned building in Simi Valley, and it was scheduled for 38 days. Over eight weeks? Over eight weeks. And then we shot 37 days with one day left to go, and then we got shut down for uh, the pandemic. This was almost to the day three years ago. You know, when our movie came out in March, I was just hoping that people will come out and see it and allow us to make our money back so A24 wouldn't lose their money, so that they would greenlight more movies like this, more stories like this that feature an Asian-American family. And everything that has happened, the whole, you know, reception, the, you know, people resonating with our movie is beyond anything we can ever imagine. And it's just been a wonderful ride so far. You've said in many interviews that the role of women is one you don't think you could have played 10 or 15 years ago. You said, I needed all that life experience to give me the nuance and the depth to give me the different versions of him. And so I wanted to unpack some of that 
life experience you were talking about in that quote? Sam, I'm so scared because uh, you know I've been I've been quite emotional uh, uh, every time I, I do an interview talking about my journey. I'm talking about my uh, having this amazing second act. Why don't we start at the beginning, if you don't mind? Yes, please. You're born in Saigon in 1971, the seventh of nine children in a household where you had to sit at the kitty table because there was overflow from your large family. You said early on that your parents instilled in you very traditional Chinese family values. What did that look and sound like growing up in Vietnam? Well, you know, uh, just because of how many kids my, uh, my parents had, there was nine of us. So there was constantly screaming, fighting, laughters. We were always fighting for attention. It was a very, very loving family. My father loves his children, and, and so does my mom. And they work really hard to provide for all of us. And this was, you know, this was in Vietnam, in Saigon. It used to be called Saigon. Now it's called Ho Chi Minh City. And life was going great until the war came mm -hmm. and everything changed. So that's in 1978, with the fall of Saigon, this robust family of yours has to split up into two factions. What happens then? We made two attempts to leave Vietnam. The first attempt, it failed, and it cost my parents everything they had. It's not cheap to get all of us out. Uh, then when that failed, my parents decided that maybe we would have a better opportunity if we were to split up. So my mom took three of my siblings, and she went to Malaysia. And when I say leave, it's like literally in the middle of the night and you secretly and try to be as quiet as possible and get on a boat, and then that boat sails out to wherever, you know, you're planning to go. Uh, and that's what my mom did uh, with three of my siblings. They went to Malaysia, and my father took six of us, and we got on a boat, and it was the biggest boat at that time. It, it had 3,000 Vietnamese refugees. I, I don't remember vividly, but I, what I do remember was I was very confused. I didn't understand why we had to leave, because I was very comfortable at home. And I didn't understand at that age, I didn't have the maturity to grasp what my parents were trying to do for us. All I remember was that my little brother, who was my best friend, and I was separated. I, I couldn't understand why we had to leave our beautiful home behind. I got on this boat and it was 3,000 people and it was very, very crowded. And my father just, you know, holding all of us together. And we were just trying to survive this journey to, to have a better future. That's what my dad would tell me when I was a kid. And, uh, and he, would also, um, he would also comfort me and assured me that uh, soon enough, I would be reunited with my mom, my brother, and my other sisters. And uh, we were in Hong Kong. We landed there. And, you know, the local government was trying to figure out what to do with us because there were so many of us. And they built this makeshift refugee camp to put us all in while they were trying to work out with other countries to see if they would take some of us. And we were in Hong Kong in a refugee camp for an entire year and not allowed to go out within, you know, the parameters of, of those fences. And to the the gracious of the American government at that time, you know, they granted us, you know, political asylum. And I got on a plane for the first time in my life. And when I landed, there was my mom and my, uh, and my siblings were waiting for us at the airport. At LAX. Yeah. And it was one of the, uh, it was one of the greatest days of my life. And the nine of us were together, finally. And that was, that was in 1979. Uh, and we came to this country with nothing. My parents were heavily in debt. Because of leaving Vietnam? Leaving Vietnam and just how much it cost to get us on that boat. And, and we started from scratch. I mean, it was, I think it, it was definitely easier for me and my younger sister and my younger brother to assimilate, to adapt to this new life, but I could not imagine what it was like for my parents, and that's why I always think they are the heroes. I'm sure it was tough for them because of the, uh, the language barrier, 
and also it was a foreign land to them at that time. I haven't talked about this for 38 years. So whatever feelings that I had, those emotions, I buried them for decades. And it's bringing back a lot of memories, some happy memories and also some painful ones as well too. And what's incredible about our movie is that it is about the immigrant journey. Yeah, and the intergenerational trauma. Yes, yes. You mentioned how talking about this period brings up both painful and happy memories for you. I'm wondering, when your family moves into that house in Chinatown, what are some of the happy images that come to mind? Yeah, I remember on the weekends after dinner, my mom would make all these wonderful food and uh, just because of how many of us, so whatever she cooks was never fast enough. Like, you know, <laughs> what, you know, she would cook one dish and she would put it on a table and then in two seconds it would be gone. Those are the happy memories. And then after dinner, you know, my, my dad would cut up like either a watermelon fruit or mango or strawberries, whatever, and they would have that. And then we would crowd around this 13-inch television and you know we didn't have much we didn't have cable or anything so whatever the local video store was renting out that's what we would watch and it was mostly movies from hong kong television shows like tvb dramas soap operas and jackie chan movies chow and fat movies and we would just sit around that tv and watch and laugh and really enjoy those family time i still remember the street we used to live in when we first immigrated it's in chinatown los angeles it's on a street called grand avenue and it was just this little house that has four bedrooms and it was one of the happiest memories i have as a child did watching those films and the performers in them did it awaken something inside of you no no i was just i was just watching as an audience member Never thought that I would become an actor. I was just very entertained by those movies. Like you said earlier, you know, I grew up in a very traditional family value with Chinese values, and uh, and my parents wanted me to be, you know, a doctor. It's very, it's very uh, stereotypical, you know, either doctor or an accountant or a lawyer. And so I never thought that I would go down the road of being an actor. The, the road was improbable. Somehow, even more improbable is the story of you landing Indiana Jones. It's 1983, you're 12 years old at a historic Chinatown public school called Castler Elementary. And it's there that a casting director for Indiana Jones was holding open auditions at the school. What happens next? I remember I was behind the camera next to the casting director watching all of this unfold as my brother was reading lines off of, a, off of sides. And as he was auditioning, I was like giving him notes behind the camera. I would say, David, try this, try this, David, try that. You were directing him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did he like that? He was fine with it. He enjoyed it. Towards the end of the audition, the casting director saw me and noticed me and says, you know, Keith, would you like to try, you know? And I didn't think much of it. I didn't even know what it was for, really. But I just thought it seemed fun. So I said, yeah, sure. And he gave me the sights, and I remember doing horribly. Uh, my <laughs> grasp of, of the English language at that time wasn't great. And then luckily, the casting director was able to see past that and say, Key, you know what? Why don't you put the sights down? Let's just talk. And I ended up chatting with her for 10, 15 minutes, I believe. And, uh, and that was it. Didn't think much of it. And then the next day, we got a call, and it was people from Steven Spielberg's office. They say, you know, we would love to see Key again. Can you come on this date and this time? And we didn't even have a car back then. My mom, it was through a translator because my mom didn't even speak English. So our translator told Stephen's office, he says, they don't have a car to get to your office. And they says, don't worry, we'll send a car. So the following day, they sent a car to pick my mom and I up. And, you know, I, I told the story before how my mom thought it was... Uh, you know, it was a fancy meeting and, you know, she, she wore this like really fancy dress and, and she put me in this, you know, absurd three-piece suit. And we were sitting on the sofa in the waiting area and that's when Steven Spielberg came out and gave me a big hug. I remember him vividly. He was kind, he was smiling and he was very warm. And he said, Key, I want you to come back the next day, but wear something comfortable. And I go, okay, 
The three-piece suit was too much. It was too much. <laughs> it was really tight, too. It, you know, I had a vest. I, I couldn't breathe in that suit. A little gold chain? Yeah, with a little gold chain hang out of this, uh, hanging out of the side pocket. Yeah, and then, you know, I went back the next day, walked in the room, and there was Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Harrison Ford. I will never forget it. We spent an entire afternoon together. And what's incredible is I immigrated here in 1979 when we had nothing. And as fate would have it, four years later in 1983, this is when that happened. And that's why to this day, every time I either see that movie on television or when people talk about it, I'm just so happy because it's not only changed my life, it changed the lives of my family. And it gave me a purpose in life. I found what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which was to be in front of a camera and be an actor. You do this film, you play the character of, of Short Round. Once the film is released in 1984, it's met with adoration from fans, the critics love it. In fact, in the New York Times, Vincent Canby wrote of your performance, Key, whose first film this is, is a very good comic sidekick who, in moments of stress, which come often, Sounds a little like Donald Duck. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, it is right because I, I, I have such a crazy sounding voice, you know. It's so different. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Donald Duck. I, I can't agree more. <laughs> just, just thought I'd gift you that strange bit of uh, and you know what? New York I, I Times And you know what? I love Donald Duck. I love Mickey Mouse. I love those. You know, those were the cartoons that I watched when I was a kid mm. growing up. So um, You're probably influenced by them. I'm sure in, in many ways I am. The point is, the film is a huge success. And as a result, you're able to buy a house for your family with the earnings of the film and help pay off some of the debts your parents had accrued after leaving Vietnam. I have to ask you, as a 13-year-old, buying a home for your parents. You know, like at 13, most kids, you know, they, they have math homework. You had like a mortgage. I just wonder, what did that, what did that look like? Did that affect your relationship with your parents? Did it change your relationship to your siblings? No, that's what's so great about my parents and my family. They never really cared what I do. And even after coming off of Indiana Jones, such a big movie, I would go home and I would still sit at the kiddie table. Really? Uh, yeah. The and home you bought? Yeah. That was just the way things ran in our family. My parents are very, very strict. But also, what I, I wanted to talk about, too, is uh, you're absolutely right. When that movie came out, it changed your life. And this is really to the generosity of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. They didn't have to do a lot of the things that they did for me, but they did. And that's why I was able to buy a house and pay off my parents' debt when the movie came out. And that's why to this day, I'm so grateful for what they have done for me. And I didn't think much of it. All I remember was that we were able to move into a, a bigger and more comfortable home. We were able to buy a car and just to, to see how happy my family was. That's what I wanted. And even to this day, when I like coming back, becoming an actor again and getting phone calls and FaceTime videos with my family and seeing how happy they are for me. That's what I want to see. Mm. That's what I always wanted. You know, that's what family is for. You know, whoever is capable should help each other. That's the value that my family taught me. That's beautiful. It really is. I, if we can take just 10% of what you have in your heart, I think we'll all do a little bit better. In the aftermath of buying this home, you star as Dada and the Goonies, which was produced by Spielberg. From there, you said, I thought the road to acting would be easy. And of course, it was anything but easy. Those next eight years would be increasingly difficult, landing bit parts in sci-fi films and a sitcom with Elliot Gould called Together We Stand. But I want to talk about 1993. You're 20 at this point, a decade removed from Indiana Jones. And it's then that you go on an audition for a no-name, two-line part as a Viet Cong soldier. How did that go? You know what's really interesting? My first audition for Steven Spielberg was on the Warner Brothers lot. It was at his office at that time. That was my first movie. 
Goonies, which is my second movie, was also at Warner Brothers, where we shot the majority of the movie. In 1993, when I went in an audition for this role of VCOM with two lines, was also on the Warner Brothers lot. I walked in the room. There were 30 other Asian actors fighting for this little, little role. I met with the casting director, and she said, Oh my God, Key, you know, we love you in Indiana Jones. We love you in Goonies. Thank you for coming in. I started my audition, and that was it. I went home. I waited an entire week for my agent to call me, thinking, Oh, I have a real good chance of landing this role because the casting director knows who I am. She enjoys my work, so maybe she'll give me this role. And this was when I, I think it's been more than a year since I was employed. My agent never called me, so finally I couldn't wait any longer. I called him, and I said, hey, did we hear back from that audition? And he says, no, I'm so sorry. I think they, you know, went with somebody else. And I said, okay, wow, wow. I was so disappointed, and I asked, I did a follow-up question. I said, is there anything else out there? Is there are there more auditions for me? And he says, no, I'm so sorry, Key, but I'll keep an eye out for you. If I have anything, I'll call you. Then he hung up the phone. Uh, it's all right. I held the phone in my head. Sat there for an hour. Did not move an inch. I don't know what I was thinking at that time. My mind was just everywhere. And I was so confused and lost because I was 23 years old at that time. And... Uh, I wasted an entire year just waiting for a phone call. At that moment, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't see a path for myself. It was a horrible feeling. And that was the first time, very, very first time, I asked myself the question, is it time to step away? And I didn't have an answer for that. I waited another year before I decided to do so, and I applied for USC film school because I didn't want to leave this industry completely. But I can see clearly that if I were to not do something else, I would just waste my entire 20s. That was in 1993. That was the first time I asked myself that question, is it time to step away? And luckily, I, I applied for USC film school. I got in. Had a wonderful time, learned a lot, made numerous friends, and started working behind the camera without thinking that one day I would be able to uh, revisit this. I always feel like <laughs> I feel like I need therapy or something, you know. So that's why every time I talk about it, I get a little bit emotional. But uh, and the only reason why I get emotional is because you know you don't you don't have to apologize. You don't. Not here, at least. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thank you. You're so sweet. Trust me, you are not the side that owes an apology. I thought about it the last few months, and um, I don't blame anybody. You know, I just, if I were to look back and put a blame, I, I would put it on timing. The timing wasn't right. I was very lucky when I was a kid. It was just not the right time for me. Well, timing is a funny thing. And it's um, a central part of this movie. Roads taken, not taken. Fantasies lived out, dreams deferred. It's very much central to everything, everywhere, all at once. But I think to understand how you made the great work you made in that film, we have to understand the decisions you did make in the time that you had to make them. Because in 99, you graduate from USC Film School and you get a call from an old action director, choreographer friend of yours. You remember what he said? Yes. He said, hey, I'm in Toronto working on this little movie. You just graduated from film school. Would you like to come and work for me? I packed. I got on a plane. I walked on set, and it was the X-Men. It was the coolest thing ever. And that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship with Koi Yuen 
for a number of years. He was able to uh, take me under his wings, taught me a lot about action, about how to look good on camera doing action, the whole choreography of it. I knew martial arts, but I didn't understand the choreography aspect of it, and that's where I learned from Koi. It's very poetic and beautiful, and also, it's, you know, it's like a dance sequence. It's like a ballet. There's a certain way to do it where it looks great on camera. What way is that? Well, you know, every punch, every kick, there's only one angle to make it look good. And then also the whole creative aspect of choreography and making it so it doesn't seem boring. All of that, I mean, it's, it's quite complicated. But yeah, that's how I was able to learn from him for many years. That's why if you look at everything everywhere all at once, the different universes, you can see the influence of it. With Alpha Wayman doing the fanny pack, that came from Ko Yuen. Mm -hmm. The movie star universe, that came entirely from working for Wong Kar Wai. And his film, uh, In the Mood for Love. In the, In the Mood for Love is one of my favorite movies of all time. I didn't work with him on that. I worked with him on 2046, where I was the assistant director. I want to know about that time. But when, when you start working with him, did it reignite some love of movie making? Yes, because his movies are so beautiful. And he has such a unique way of making movies. No other filmmakers is able to afford that luxury. You know, he makes a movie in like five years. He would write something and then he would gather his cast and crew together. He would shoot it for a week and then everybody would go do something else. And then they would continue that writing process. So it's very unique. And I learned the word perseverance from him. It's incredible. He never gives up. I remember... When we were shooting 2046, every year there's a deadline to submit your film for Cannes Film Festival. And the deadline would approach, and there was always that pressure on him to finish the movie. You know, everybody asked him, you know, is it going to be done in time to go to Cannes this year? You know, and he would always say, yes, yes. And then as the time gets closer and closer, it's obvious that we're not going to make that deadline. And then another year would pass but he would still continue to work on it. And it's a fascinating process. And I was with him the whole time. I was just so blown away by how calm he is, how collected he is. And he's just so focused on giving into his vision, on making the best movie he can, no matter how much pressure from the outside. That was a great lesson for me. After the break, more from actor Ki Hoi Kwan. Emboldened by his directorial style, you're clearly still part of the industry, still working in a medium you love. But through the 2000s, you don't do much acting. And I'm curious, financially, was that challenging at times? Was it hard to make it through? I know you met your wife through Wong Kar Wai. Was that a hard period? I was okay. I can't say I was struggling to put food on the table. I did Comic-Cons. That helped. First of all, I don't want people to think that I'm rich or well-off or anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm nowhere close. Uh, you know, I, I was content working behind the camera, making a decent living, but there was just something missing all those years. And I didn't know what it was then. I mean, honestly, only now looking back in retrospect, do I know what that was. But during that entire time, I was just working on projects and moving on like everybody. But if you were to ask me, was I really happy? No, I don't think I was really happy. And I didn't understand what I was missing. In looking back at this time, you said once, when those opportunities dried up, I spent a long time trying to convince myself that I didn't like acting anymore. I was lying to myself. Why did you do that? That's a great question. I guess it was a way for me to uh, lessen the pain that I had to step away. And because I just didn't see a day that I would act again. So subconsciously, I guess I would feel better if I were able to convince myself that I don't like acting anymore. In fact, over the years, a lot of people have come up to me and say, hey, 
are you the kid from Indiana Jones? You were outstanding. How come you're not acting anymore? And I never once told the truth. I always told them, well, you know, it's just because, you know, I, I just want to do something else now. But the truth was, there was just no opportunities for me as an Asian actor at that time. I've said it enough times. I've lied to myself enough times where I actually believed it. That must have been painful to hold that. It wasn't that bad if I didn't talk about it. <laughs> you know, I never had to talk about it. When did you start telling yourself a different story? It was when, when Crazy Rich Asians came out. That was it. It was that movie. Because it was the first time that I saw a wonderful movie, a very successful movie, that featured an entire cast of Asian actors. And when I saw that movie, I so wish that I was up there with them. I really did. I, want, I, I was like, wow, wouldn't it be great if I was one of those actors? And then it was then that, that acting bug that I buried so deep started crawling towards the surface. I was 48. I was getting close to 50. And I was wondering what I'd want to do for the next 10 years from 50 to 60. I wasn't getting anywhere with working behind the camera at that time. It was this thought of, do I want to act again? Can I act again? Was more in the beginning. Not if I want it, but can I act again? You know, because I haven't done it more than 20 years. You and your wife would have these conversations. We would have these conversations at night. She says, are you sure about this? And my answer was always, I'm not sure. I don't know if I can do this. And I don't even know if Hollywood wants me. Because they, you know, they didn't want me before. You know, why would they want me now, 20-something years later? But then every time we would have this conversation, and I didn't think it would go anywhere, I would just brush it away. But every time I brush it away, this voice in me comes back stronger and louder. And what does it say? It tells me that you should do this again. This is where you belong. You will be so much happier. And every time... It would come back louder. But there was just so much fear in me getting rejected again and again and again. You know, I'm not in my 20s. So getting rejected again and again, when you're 50 years old, it's quite, you know, it's quite sad. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I didn't know if I was prepared for that. And that's what my wife was saying all along. Oh, you prepared to go in and audition again and again and get it rejected again and again. If you are, then go for it. Because she loves me so much. And the last thing she wants is to see me struggle, to suffer. So she didn't want that. There was a lot of fear. But then as I was approaching 50, the fear of regret, when it finally overwhelmed any fear that I had of getting back into acting, that's when I decided I have to do this. And that was when I called my friend who is an agent. And I said, uh, hey, can you come out? Can we have lunch? And we did. And uh, I told him, I said, I want to be an actor again. What do you think about that? He said, yeah, sounds good. And I said, great, but I don't have an agent. Will you be my agent? Practically begging him for re representation. And then I remember asking him, do you think that I will be able to get a job as an actor after so many years? Do you think casting directors will want to see me? And he asked me, you know, what do you want? And I said, well, I hope I can get a series regular role on a television show where the job is stable. Do you think that's possible? And he said, I don't know. It's hard to get a series regular. I don't know. I mean, anything's possible, but, you know, you would have to, if you want to do this, you have to go all in. You can't put half a foot in. That's what he asked. Is this, are you ready to go all in? And I said, yes, I am. Let's do this. Two weeks later, I got that phone call. And he said, there's this little movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And it stars Michelle Yeoh. That was the call. That night, I spoke with my wife. And I said, do you think there's any chance I can be in this movie? And she's always very supportive. And she's always very optimistic. He says, anything can happen, Key. As long as you really want it, you'll get it. When that script came in, I read it for the very first time. I was so emotional. 
And when my wife saw how emotional I was and how much I loved the script and how much I loved this role, she says, "Key, you are going to get this role." She said that. She said that. And I said, "You're crazy. You don't. You don't know Hollywood. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to get this." She says, "Key, you will work with Michelle Yeoh." It's a good thing you married her. You know, honestly, I've said this before. One of the big reasons why you know had had this role been offered to me before, and I don't think I could have played it had I not met my wife. She is the real Wayman in my world. Oh, she's kind. She's generous. She's just so loving, and she changed me. I'm a different person because of her. I'm who I am now. It's because of her, and the only reason I can play Wayman is because of her. Well, in fact, you do play Wayman in this film. Her prediction comes true. Yeah, and sure enough, you find yourself on the set of this movie. And I want to stick with something specific, which is that as you step onto the set, you notice. The attention to detail created by the production designer and the costume designer, and I wonder what those details, after all you've been through, what those details signified to you. When I walked on set the first time, the first thing I noticed were those hardworking production assistants that greeted me, that helped the actors get to the set because I, I worked behind the camera for so long. All those wonderful and talented crew. That worked so hard to make everything happen for us before that first shot. I remember the placement of the camera. I stood behind the camera for many, many years, and that first time I stepped in front of that camera, after so long, it felt amazing. I felt like I was a kid again. I felt alive. It's a very special feeling. And the、uh, Wayman's outfit in the laundromat. <laughs> that's a great outfit, isn't it? And the fanny pack, and the little piggy that's hanging off of it. Did it feel familiar to you? Yes. In fact, when I was trying on different outfits, when we did the the wardrobe fittings, there was one particular shirt that was hanging off the rack. I looked at it, and it was a shirt that my father would wear. In fact, the fabric, the color. Everything about it felt so familiar, and I asked our costume designer Shirley. I said, "Where did you buy this?" <laughs> and she said, "Chinatown, Los Angeles," and that's where my father used to shop. Forty years later. Forty years later, putting that wardrobe on for the first time and looking at myself in the mirror, there was a moment in there that I go, "Wow, I look like my dad." That must have been something. It was. My father passed away in two thousand and one, so he was really happy for me when I got you know Temple of Doom. But then you know later on, I'm sure he he saw me struggle as an actor, and I just I, I wish you can see me now, see our movie. It would be incredible. I think he would be very very proud. Yeah, I think that's right. Although he can't. We can, and、uh, as we leave, I thought、um, perhaps we'd sit with the scene together and、uh, talk about it. Okay. What do you think? What scene do you have in mind? <laughs> I have one. I'm going to try to set this up, but this movie、uh, defies log lines at every turn. This is a key delivering an impassioned plea. I did not mean for that to rhyme. For kindness. Namely, to his wife, played by Michelle Yeoh, as things are falling apart across the multiverse. Please, please, can we, can we just stop fighting? You said this is a very painful world. We are all in the middle of a war. 你和我都在这个地球上活了这么久了。I know you are fighting because you're scared and confused. I'm confused too. All day, I don't know what the heck. 
what is going on. But somehow, it feels like it's all my fault. I always see the good things in the world. It's not because I'm stupid. It's because I'm needed. It's also my self-esteem. The only thing I do know is that we have to be kind. Please be kind, especially when we don't know what's going on. I understand that you're not a kind person. Hey, Evelyn. Bagel. <laughs> you can still turn around and avoid all this. Please be kind. I love that scene. I love the music. Sun Lux did such an amazing job with the with the score, and it's such a beautifully written scene by the Daniels. I remember reading that script, and that that's the part when I cry the most. And it was also the scene that that gave me the most pressure when we were shooting it. I remember that day well, where it's a big scene, and they they got these two huge wind machine it was loud. Confetti was all over the place. There were there were a ton of background actors, and the entire cast was there. And I was off to the side, just trying to stay in that in that mindset. And I was so afraid that I would not be able to go there emotionally when the camera rolls. But then, you know, I think this is the credit to how beautifully written that speech is. When I uttered that first line, I could not help myself. Tears just started streaming down my face. We did two takes of that. And afterwards, as they wrapped it up and set up the next shot, I was still crying. I was off to the side. I was crying uncontrollably. And Dan Kwan, one of our directors, saw me, came over, and gave me a big hug, and made a joke and pulled me out of it. Why do you think you're crying so much? The message, the kindness. I think that's what the world needs uh, with everything that's going on in the past three years. When we were shooting it, this was pre-pandemic, but we live in such a cruel world, and I just want everybody to be happy and to be kind to one another, and to have empathy. When we were watching that scene just now, seeing you jump across the multiverse and and your three characters in it, I couldn't help but think of this beautiful description of your performance, which uh, comes from Bilga Iberi. In Vulture, this is what he wrote. The picture bears the hallmarks of Quan's many lives. Hong Kong action, the kind UN helped pioneer, melancholy lyricism as perfected by Wong, and sci-fi fantasy that builds towards cathartic, unifying uplift, which one might call pulling a Spielberg. The film also channels something deeper, a sense of stifled potential unlocked. I keep coming back to that passage because he pinpoints the triptych you embody so perfectly that you could have only embodied after living the life you've led. But it's that line, a sense of stifled potential unlocked, that stayed with me. You know, I wasn't brought up by my parents to put blames or, you know, when, when things don't go right. If things don't go the way you want, I was taught that well. Then you need to work harder. It's nobody's fault. And do you still believe that? Yeah, I mean, it's so ingrained in me. I can't think any other way. All I can say is that all of this is happening now, and I'm I'm really grateful to be here. If you ask me, could I have done anything different? No, I think for this role to exist, I I think everything has to happen the way it did in order for this moment to arrive, and I'm okay with that. I'm here. I'm really happy. I'm in a good place, and 
over the past few months, so many people have come up to me and told me that they love our movie. They really enjoy it. It changed their life. And they start crying in front of me. That's the most beautiful thing. That's why I love our movie so much. It's just hopefully, you know, if we can play a little, little tiny role in helping this world to be a better place, everything is worth it. Yeah, this quote I really like. You said, over the years, I've met a lot of Asian talent now working in Hollywood. They always thank me and say, man, it was so great to see you up there on the screen because I was able to see myself. Thank you for paving the way for us to be here. And of course, it's really interesting because they've paved the way for my return. And this image is so vivid because it feels like a baton being passed in a race that you began back in 1984. That's beautiful, Sam. And now, in 2023, you're being asked to finish the race. Well, I hope the race is not finished yet, meaning that, you know, we get to keep doing this. Yeah, you put it so beautifully. I, I, I don't know how I can act to that. Well, does it feel like that to you? Do you see it in those terms? And what does it mean if you do? First of all, that's why representation matters. And if I can help a little kid out there, a little Asian kid, to be inspired and to believe that he can do anything he wants in life, then I've done my job. For the longest time, I just didn't think that all of this would be possible. So all the people that have done it for the last 20 years gave me courage to do this again. And if my story can somehow help the people who have given up their dreams or who, who didn't think their life could be better, if I can inspire them to think differently, to act differently, then that would be incredible. So the dream, in many ways, the one that began back on the set of Indiana Jones, it's alive once more. Yes. <laughs> it's great. Well, then I only have really one question left, which is that every year on your birthday in August, you uh, make a wish for something. But I've been told that this past year, when you turned 51, that you didn't wish for anything. Why was that? My wish came true. This movie have given me so, so, so much. And I just felt that if I would have wished for anything more, I would be too greedy. I've already gotten this unbelievable second act as an actor. It's put me in a great place. What else can I ask for? You keep talking about the second act. There's that old quote Fitzgerald has, that there are no second acts in American life. But I think he was a um, smart guy, but wrong on this one. <laughs> hate to say it. <laughs> think he was wrong on this one. Yeah. And, and since you didn't make a wish for your birthday, it still technically means that you have one left. And so I'm going to do it for you. I wish you everything you've earned and so much more. And, and I hope, I wish to see you doing the thing you've always been meant to do. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. And you know what? If I were to have one wish, I would wish that everybody's wishes come true as it came true for me. Everybody deserves it. Mr. Kwan, thank you for sitting with me. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. You are an incredible... Uh, uh, this is... I had the most fun. Uh, this is the most fun? You know what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed by how much you know about me <laughs> before, I, before I, I even sat down. It's like you talked about stuff that... The amount of research, the amount of uh, stuff that you scour to do this interview is very, very impressive. We do it no other way. I wish you luck. And uh, I feel like there's some good news coming. So let's, let's, just, <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's hope for that. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Till next time.
And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen. I want to give a special thanks to Chase Lehner and the team at Narrative PR. I also want to thank the inimitable Ki Hui Kwan. If you still haven't seen Everything Everywhere all at once, we'll include links to where you can watch it in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Kate Blanchett, Rob Sharon, Pedro Pascal, Jonathan Majors, Hiro Murai, Tessa Thompson, and Ethan Hawke. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support us by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at iHeartMedia in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with author Min Jin Lee. Until then, stay safe and so on.